This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 26 Traveling Showmen There was a first and second supper table at Timberley that evening, for among the people who had come out from Woodridge were a number to whom the Tomlinson hospitality was a matter of course. John Barclay, Dr. Caxton, Doc Baird, and that loquacious war veteran Mitch Rucker were among those who put their legs under the long table that night. Mitch declared he had not seen anything since Bull Run to equal the day's excitement. I have a standing offer of $500 to anyone who'll explain the bricks your wife saw, Richard, or produce the ones that we heard whiz through the air. I don't expect to be taken up. Which was just as well, since Mitch hadn't $500 to his name. They were halfway through the meal before Richard noticed Thorne's absence. The children were being served in the kitchen, and he supposed she was with them. But when the company adjourned to the front room after supper and Thorne still did not put in an appearance, Richard drew his mother aside and asked her to send Thorne in. I don't want her hidden away, mother. It looks as though we thought her guilty of something. No one's hiding her away, son. She's not here. Where is she? She hasn't come back from Jane's yet. Then I'll go for her. It's too late for her to come home alone. The company stayed late. There was much talk, because there was not a person present who hadn't some anecdote or theory to add to the rapidly growing legend of the brick-throwing. Dr. Caxton said, If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed an entire community could so hypnotize itself as to credit what did not exist. Half the people who were here today will tell their grandchildren, years hence, about seeing bricks from nowhere crash through the Tomlinson's window. Miss Anne glanced uneasily at her daughter-in-law. Judith had appeared at the supper table, looking much as usual and apparently in better spirits than she had been all day. Anne Tomlinson hoped this talk would not disturb her. Otis Hughes was out there this afternoon, she said to change the subject. I expected him to come up to the house for supper, but he drove away. This turned the talk on Hughes and his long-standing grudge against Richard. It was agreed that Hoos would stop at nothing to embarrass the man of whom he had always been jealous. But here, even the lawyer's disparagers stopped and went no further. No one who had mingled with the excited mob that afternoon could accuse Otis Hoos of having assembled it. The strangest experience of the day was reported by John Barclay and Doc Baird. Doc and I went close to the house once, said the schoolmaster. Doc stood in front of the window. I stood not far from the door. We determined to stand there until somebody fancied he heard another brick coming. Richard grinned. He seemed determined to treat the whole thing lightly. Weren't you afraid you might be struck? The blacksmith said gravely. I wish I had been. Why? That would have proved that bricks were being thrown, said Doc, and glanced significantly at Judith. An uncomfortable silence fell upon the group. Well, I suppose when no brick came, said Richard, after a long pause, a voice said coolly, A brick did come. It was the first time Judith had spoken. She looked straight at the schoolmaster. Tell them, Mr. Barkley. 
Barkley, visibly embarrassed, took up the tale. Somebody in the crowd called out that he heard a brick coming. Someone else cried out that he heard it fall. A few minutes later, we heard a muffled scream within the house. Doc and I rushed inside and found Miss Judith. She was staring at a spot on the floor. Judith said in the same cold voice, Of course, either of you could have removed the brick. We could have, but we didn't. Because, said Doc, there was no brick to remove. Judith's hands gripped the arms of her chair to still their trembling. You accuse me of lying? We know you're not lying, said the blacksmith solemnly. You saw something on the floor that frightened you speechless. We saw nothing at all. That's why I said I wished I had been struck by a brick. Richard said matter-of-factly. What Judith saw on the floor was a spot of sunshine. And put an end to ghostly speculation. But the pallor of Judith's face caused Dr. Caxton to look at her sharply. She laughed to show how little the talk affected her. But there was a shrillness in her laughter that the doctor did not like. He lingered a moment when the other men had departed. You don't look so good tonight, Miss Judith. Maybe I'd better leave you a dose of calomel. Spring of the year makes people bilious. If you leave me anything, doctor, let it be some more of that sedative. Still having trouble sleeping? Now and then. Well, go light on this. He handed her a bottle from the black bag without which he never traveled. You can't take this like you took that other stuff. Enough of this will put you to sleep permanently. Judith smiled. You can trust me to use it in the right proportions. When the doctor had gone, Judith said to her husband, Your friends tried their best to make me believe I've been seeing supernatural manifestations. It's what might be expected from that ignorant blacksmith, but I'm surprised at a man of John Barclay's intelligence. Richard's reply was smothered in a yawn. He had decided in his own mind that Judith was malingering, and he no longer concerned with what he saw or claimed to see. He was troubled and uneasy because Thorne had stayed at Jane's. He was afraid something had been said to hurt her feelings, but he did not like to start another argument with his wife. So he banked the fire and mumbled goodnight and waited for Judith to go upstairs so that he could go to bed in the alcove. The rest of the family had retired. But Judith had something on her mind. She was burning to know if he had missed Thorne. By the way... She said casually. Where was Thorne this evening? She's spending the night at Jane's. Oh, I see. She stood turning the bottle of sedative in her hands. Don't take too much of that stuff, Judith. Why? I heard what Dr. Caxton told you. Would you care, Richard, if I took too much? He looked at her sharply, alarmed at first, then exasperated. I think you'd better give it to me. He reached for the bottle. She surrendered it obediently, like a child. She was in a queer mood tonight. He said, I'll bring this up to you if you need it, but try to sleep without it tonight. He yawned elaborately. Better go to bed now. We're both tired and sleepy. But she still lingered. Richard? Yes? Surely you're not sleeping down here tonight. Why not? I'm not afraid of your bricks. I don't mean that. She came close to him. Her perfumed hands touched his face. 
Darling, haven't you sulked long enough? Come back upstairs to our room and stop behaving like a bad little boy. The exquisite scent which had once stirred his senses no longer moved him. There was nothing left of their relationship except a strange feeling of guilt. Why should this be? When she was his wife, he did not try to understand. But he knew now that always there had been between them the dark thrill of something illicit. I'll sleep down here, Judith. The gentleness of his tone missled her. I'll stay with you then, she whispered. No. He spoke with harsh finality, so that she drew away from him. There is too much that is wrong between us, Judith. You mean... She began, then stopped. She would not bring Thorne's name into this. All that was gone now. I don't know what I mean, Judith. There's something dark and shameful between us that I don't understand. Sometimes I think it's because we married too soon after Abigail died. And again, I think it came from that terrible feeling of relief I had when she was gone. But whatever the cause, I've always had a feeling of guilt with you. That's your Puritan conscience convicting you of sin for finding pleasure in love. No, you're wrong. I don't hold love a sin except when sinners indulge in it. And you call us sinners? With our double ring marriage ceremony? I don't mean that. He made a futile gesture. It was something he could not explain. I have to think things out, Judith. If you don't mind, I'll say goodnight. She took her candle and went upstairs. It was past midnight when Richard awoke from a sound sleep. For a moment he thought he was still dreaming, for he seemed to be in a theater watching Charlotte Cushman come down the stairs in the sleepwalking scene from Macbeth. She wore a trailing robe and held a candle high above her head, and her hair fell in long braids on either side of her breasts. She looked pale and distraught, and in his half-slumbering state, Richard acknowledged that she was a marvelous actress. She did not look haunted. She was haunted. Then he started into complete wakefulness and realized that he was looking through his own open door and that the woman with the taper descending the stairs was Judith. He sat up and reached for a night robe, but he did not go with her. If she were walking in her sleep, it was dangerous to waken her. He waited till she reached the foot of the stairs and started down the hall. Then he followed her. She went straight to the south bedroom. Carefully, she set her candle on the table. Then she opened the closet door and dropped to her knees. He saw her thrust her hand into the hole under the floor. When she drew it forth, full of nothing but cobwebs, her eyes were wide with terror. But they were alert and conscious. She was not asleep. If you're looking for the doll, Judith, it's not there. She turned in the direction of his voice, and he saw that she was utterly undone. Otis Hughes found the doll the night he slept here. She rose to her feet, swaying dizzily, and began brushing the dust from her hands. She offered no explanation for what she had been doing. Richard went on. 
Hughes guessed that the doll had been used to kill Abigail. I had to tell him that it was I who hid it here, in order to protect Thorn. She seemed not to be listening. She seemed only intent on getting the cobwebs off her hands. But now I know that it was you, Judith, who hid the doll. You tied the string round its neck and put it on Abigail's bed, hoping it would frighten her to death. You planned it step by step how she might die from fear, and you seized on a child's harmless toy to feed her superstitious terror. When you read her those books about witchcraft, you had the doll even then, and knew how you were going to use it, didn't you, Judith? His low, relentless voice was like a prodding hand pushing her to the very brink. And when you had frightened her into a heart attack, you hid the doll where you thought no one would ever find it, because there was no one to see you except the woman who was dying. You forgot about her, didn't you? She left off brushing her hands and began plucking at her throat. Maybe you have seen phantom bricks, Judith, and heard phantom clocks. Maybe that is why you were looking for the doll tonight, because you suddenly recalled that only Abigail knew where you had put it. She no longer heard him. She had crumpled in a senseless heap. He lifted her in his arms and carried her up to her room. It was noon the next day before it was discovered that Thorne was not at Mitchell's. Alec came over to see how Judith was, and when Miss Anne inquired about Thorne, he said that she had not been at their house since the day before. The dinner bell had already rung, and the Tomlinson men could be seen approaching the house. Miss Anne said, Don't say anything about this to Richard, not till we've located Thorne. But at first sight of his brother-in-law, Richard demanded, How much longer are you and Jane going to keep Thorne? Then, catching a glance between the mother and Alec. She is at your house, isn't she? Didn't she stay there last night? And you waited till noon today to tell us? The word was like an alarm bell. Richard's face drained of color. Miss Anne said quickly, She's not lost. Mother, you told me. Now keep cool, Richard. I took for granted when she didn't come home that she was spending the night with Jane— but I suppose she stayed with Nancy Turner instead. We'll get your horse and ride over to your sister Kate's and bring Thorn home. Anne spoke with as much certainty as though Thorn's presence at the Turners was an established fact. I'll go myself, said Richard, and before his younger brother could marshal his slower faculties, he was out of the house and on his way to the barn. A few minutes later, he could be seen galloping across the open field. The Turner farm was less than a mile as the crow flies. It was three miles by road. Judith stood by the open window and watched her husband ride away. Young Will, looking unusually glum, sat down and began eating his dinner. Perhaps he resented his brother's usurpation of his own rights of primary concern for Thorne's safety. No one, not even their mother, had given a thought to Will's feelings. They had taken for granted that Richard was the one on whom the blow had fallen. Sit down, Alec, and eat with us, said Miss Anne. Come, Judith. No use waiting for Richard. He won't be back till he finds Thorne. Alarm leaped to Judith's eyes, as though this were a turn she had not foreseen. Miss Anne, 
misinterpreting, added quickly. She's around the neighborhood somewhere. The meal was eaten in almost unbroken silence, a rare occurrence at the Tomlinson's board. A strange foreboding stilled the usually lively tongues. Even the children were quiet. Everyone seemed waiting for Richard's return. He rode up on a sweating horse just as they rose from the table. One look at his face, and they guessed his news. Wasn't she there? Asked Will quickly. Hasn't been there. Said Richard. Hasn't been seen by any of the Turners. Dark color rose in Will's cheeks as though something in his brother's look angered him. He said shortly. I'll go over to Cousin Ludie's. Jesse Moffat volunteered to go over to Henry Shook's. Alex Mitchell said, The thing for us to do is to take different directions. There are four of us, and in each house we come to, there'll be others to join us. We can comb the whole district before dark. For the first time, the gravity of the situation was put into words. Thorne might not be at anyone's house. She might be lying behind some hedgerow or in some dark thicket of the woods. There had been a motley crowd at Timberley the day before. It had been afternoon when the young girl had set out to walk home alone from Jane's. Alec's plan was put into action. Richard rode off again, not waiting for food, taking the dirt road to the south. As soon as horses could be saddled, the other three men rode north and east and west. Following by lanes and fence rows, as well as beaten paths, missing not a house. And at each house, there was someone ready to join the search. By nightfall, Timberley District had been combed as with a fine-tooth comb. But no trace of Thorn was found. No one could even remember seeing her after she left Jane's house. Though nearly every person in the countryside had been to Tomlinson's the day before. No, sir. Never saw Thorn while I was there was the report on all sides. Frequently followed by, I remarked about it, because there had been talk a while back that all the funny stuff Miss Judith had seen was nothing but Thorne's magic tricks. But I says to myself, I reckon this clears the girl of witch's doing. Richard's wife is seeing things this time, and Thorne ain't even here. No, Thorne had not been seen by anyone the day before. Only when it became too dark to see did the men return to the house, and then there were only three. Miss Anne asked sharply, Where's Richard? The men replied that they had not seen him. He would be in soon, no doubt. But Richard did not come. Anne Tomlinson, no longer gallantly pretending, prayed silently. Oh, God, bring him home. Oh, dear God, don't let him be hurt too much. And she remembered a long time ago when his dog had been lost and he stayed out half the night. A little seven-year-old lad searching the dark woods for his pet. Until she and his father had had to search for him. To his mother, he was still that little boy searching for something he had lost. Will Tomlinson eating his supper, listening for his brother's step wondered jealously why Richard should search later than he. 
and the anger he had felt at noon rose again within him. Then remembering the look he had seen on his brother's eyes, he knew that he would never be able to grieve for Thorn as Richard would grieve. It would have been a terrible mistake for him to have married her when Richard loved her so. It was better, perhaps, that this thing had happened. Judith's thoughts, too, were on that lonely rider searching the woods. How long would he look for the girl before relinquishing hope? And afterward, what then? Would he turn to his wife for consolation? Last night's discovery she could easily turn to her own account as proof of her overwhelming desire for him. But would Thorn, absent, prove an even sharper barrier than Thorn present had been? Supper was put by, chores were done, bedtime came, but no one went upstairs. At 11 o'clock, Anne Tomlinson said to her younger son, I think you should go look for your brother. Will promptly rose as though the thought were already in his mind. Jesse Moffat said, I'd better go with you. Fresh fear struck Judith, sharper than any she had known. Why should you look for Richard? Isn't he old enough to come home by himself? Will said, There's no telling what he might do, if he found what he feared to find. A scream rose in Judith's throat, but her clutching hand held it back. The thought of Richard. It is you who should jump in the mill pond. (laughs) She laughed to cover the scream. Thorn is your loss, not Richard's. Thorn belongs to Richard said young Will, and no one contradicted him. They did not search for Richard after all. Before the men got started, he came in, looking so tired and spent and utterly hopeless that those who sprang up eagerly at his step stopped in consternation at the sight of his face. Richard, where have you been? cried his mother. It was as they had feared he had been dragging the mill pond, He and Ralph Tatum had worked by the light of lanterns when it got too dark to see. They found nothing. But he had come home. The thing they dreaded had not happened. He sat in his chair, his head between his hands, refusing the food his mother set before him. He did not seem to hear when the other men tried to paint as hopeful a picture as possible. No news is good news, Richard. Thorn has come to no harm or we should have found her. Remember, there were people here yesterday from as far away as Bridgeton. She must have gone home with someone. The words held false comfort. Thorn never went anywhere without permission. When Alec had gone home, Will said, There's nothing more we can do tonight. I'm going to bed. He took his candle and started for the stairs. Richard's voice halted him. Don't you care? Will stopped with his foot on the step. You mean about finding Thorn? What else matters? Why, a matter of things. The plowing of the south field matters. There's corn to be planted. If we don't get to bed pretty soon, we won't want to get up in the morning. He went on up the stairs. Judith had said nothing. She had sat in silence, watching her husband sunk in grief. And something worse than grief the torture of the unknown. She wondered how far she dared go in, putting an end to his uncertainty. He could not go on like this. He would be ill. 
So when the others had retired, she said to him, Has it occurred to you that Thorn might have gone away of her own volition? You mean run off? Never. Not run off. Just decide to leave. She's often talked of it. She'd never go without letting me know. She promised. Not if she were suddenly offered a chance. Richard looked at his wife suspiciously. What do you know? Nothing, said Judith smoothly. Except what everyone knows. That Thorne left Jane's house yesterday and started for home. And what was going on here? An excited mob was milling about the house. A dare say there was plenty of talk circulating about Thorne. Suppose this is just conjecture. Someone on the outskirts of the crowd offered her a chance to escape from what was becoming an intolerable situation? And who could have offered such a chance? Did you notice a covered wagon in the grove yesterday? For a moment, every pulse in his body seemed to stop. He recalled the wagon, which had passed him at dusk in the lane. Could Thorn have been beneath that canvas top and his heart not have told him? He said, She would never go off with a Pennsylvania farmer. He wasn't a farmer, said Judith. He was a traveling showman. How do you know? He came up to the house for water. I talked to him. Why? You're not usually so interested in vagrants. The sarcasm was ignored. When Thorn came from Jane's, she must have passed this wagon. Not if she came across the fields. She didn't come across the fields. She came by the turnpike and through the grove. How do you know? Judith's hand went to her throat. She had talked too much. You seem to be pretty well informed about Thorne's movements. Why haven't you told this before? Because it's only a suspicion. I don't know anything. You know she came through the grove, don't you? Yes, I know that much, but that's all. I don't believe you, Judith. If you'd withhold that knowledge when everyone else was searching, you'd withhold more. What else do you know? Nothing. I saw Thorne from my window yesterday when she came home. She came through the grove, to avoid the crowd, I suppose, and ran into the house. I called to her. She said she was getting something to eat. A little later, she ran out again, and I saw her racing toward that wagon. That's the last time I saw her. And that's the truth, Richard, I swear it. He looked at her with implacable coldness. Why have you waited 24 hours to tell this? I never thought of it at first. Then it seemed such a bare possibility that I kept still rather than delay your search. After all, the most important thing was to make sure she had not suffered foul play in the woods. But now that you have failed to find any trace of her, I really believe she left of her own accord with those people in the wagon. They were her kind of people, Richard. That banner, California or bust, would have caught her eye. Judith smiled as though the whole thing were working out in the happiest possible manner. I've always felt, Richard, that if Thorne were left to her own devices, she would do the right thing. And of course, the right thing was for her to go back to her own environment. So instead of wearing ourselves out with searching for the child, let's say our prayers tonight with special gratitude for the way God has worked things out for the good of all concerned. 
Richard rose to his feet, and the impact of his words seemed the greater coming from that tall, stern height. Don't blame God, Judith, for your own conniving. You mean you don't believe me? I believe what you told is true, only you haven't told it all. What happened between the time you called to Thorn and she left the house? What did you say to her, Judith? Don't answer, it would only be to lie. After what I learned about you last night, I know that you would stop at nothing to gain your purpose. You said something to Thorn that made her feel it was necessary for her to leave Timberly, didn't you, Judith? Her face was white with the knowledge of defeat. She had lost everything now. She had nothing more to lose, or so she thought. And what if I did? Was I to stand silently by and see my home wrecked without lifting a finger? Thank you for telling me, Judith. He almost smiled. Telling you what? All I wanted to know. Now that I know why Thorn left, I believe the rest of your story is true. Those people were headed west, weren't they? And they pulled out yesterday evening? They're only a day's journey from here. A good fast horse could overtake them by tomorrow night. You mean you'd follow them? Fool. Fool that she'd been to have spoken so soon. She should have waited a week at least. It will do you no good, Richard. It will only make you a laughing stock. After what I said to Thorn, she'll never come back. In that case, there'll be one more traveler bound for California. You're mad. I was never so sane in my life. You'd leave your wife, your mother, your children for that? Don't say it, Judith. I warn you. Can you imagine what people will say? It doesn't concern me. You're crazy. Drunk. You don't know what you're doing. For the first time in my life, I do know what I'm doing. There was a glow in his face, a profound assurance that none who knew him had ever seen before in the eyes of Richard Tomlinson. God will punish you, Richard. Do you know, Judith, (laughs) this is a strange thing to say under the circumstances, but I feel right with God for the first time since I married you. There was a spring in his step as he went up the stairs. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project DF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at valeriemoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. Hi, my name is Garrett Odell from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me 
where I co-host with my friend Frankie on the ever-trending story podcast. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yes. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Editing, mixing, and additional voices by James Seabrook at Two Bodies of Water Productions. Follow our hosts on Twitter at Two Bodies of Water. Got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. Hi, I'm Jeff Moss, Valerie's husband, and I'm the voice of the restaurant manager and the chapter titles. I live in Calgary, Alberta, and can be found at jeffmoss.ca. Hello, my name is Kyle Marshall. I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm a couple of voices in this production. I'm also the owner of Media Lab, where you can find out more information at medialabyyc.com, where we help you make the podcasts of your dreams. I also host the podcast Creative Block, which talks to artists and creative entrepreneurs. As well, I host the podcast Putting It Together about the work of Stephen Sondheim, and I co-host Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine, where each season we talk about the films of one specific year. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com. And on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Hi, I'm Jack Hewson. I'm from Adelaide, Australia. I play Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Uh, you can find me at Jack in the Hat on Instagram, um, or find my podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search up Tiger Phonics. That's T-I-G-E-R-F-O-N-I-X. And yeah, get in touch. See ya. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi there, my name is Sam Sprunger, and I am currently in Indiana, and I am playing the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath, called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. The girl might be considered your business, retorted Judith. Thorn never bound herself to me, was Will's reply. She lifted her eyes to the kitchen shelf above her head. A neat row of canisters held a molly assortment of condiments and household remedies. Her face was contorted, wet with sweat, and she seemed to be in agony. Tell me just what happened. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but we're unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.